Before we get started today, I just wanted to say, wow, it's been three months since I published my very first podcast episode. I still remember just how nervous I was putting it out into the world. I had no idea how to edit audio files, didn't even have a proper microphone, I thought my voice was super annoying. So I think I've definitely come a long way since then, but I know I still have a long, long way to go. But I wanted to take a minute to just thank you uh, for tuning in and hopefully the content has been resonating with you guys so far and hopefully it's been helpful for you guys. I would love to ask for a favor though. Um, If you guys have a minute, I would love to get some feedback from you guys on what you think of the episode so far. It's such a weird feeling sitting here, you know, putting out content into the world and not having any idea if the content's resonating or if, you know, this is helpful to anyone at all. So um, I've put a feedback form in the show notes. Um, So if you guys don't mind uh, just clicking in there, leaving me a couple of thoughts, even if it's just a simple, hey, I'm here, I'm listening, that would be very much appreciated. All right, on to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Career, a podcast where I interview people who have taken a leap and embarked on an alternative career path in Asia. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and today I'm super happy to have Ariana join us. She just might be the coolest person I've had the pleasure of meeting. While she originally followed a pretty traditional path, she grew up in Hong Kong, went to university in the U.S., and started her career as a management consultant. She is now based full-time in Ethiopia and has founded a company called Forested Foods. The main goal of her company is to combat deforestation, and they do this by incentivizing farmers to grow products around the forest. So instead of clearing out the forest to grow crops like soybeans, her company incentivizes farmers to grow products around the forest, like having beehives on trees where you can farm the honey and sell them, or growing pepper and other spices at the base of the tree. And in the process, the forest is preserved. The company then buys, processes, and distributes these products on behalf of the farmers. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Ariana, for your time and for joining me today. I want to jump straight into it. You have such a fascinating career, but I want to start at the beginning. How did you go from following a very traditional career path to starting a business in Ethiopia? Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I feel very blessed to have started my professional life in consulting. I think it's so great for young people to be on the professional services side. But I think about a year and a half, two years in, I was feeling pretty burnt out and just, you know, starting to ask myself more and more why I was there. And I think like many people, so much of my life was spent at work that I started kind of wanting more personal satisfaction from those precious hours. So when I initially left my consulting job, it was on short-term leave. And it was really inspired by the stories of other you know, friends, notably this other consultant at my firm who had enrolled in TechnoServe's fellowship program. So TechnoServe is a nonprofit that takes a business approach to reduce poverty. They work with people, largely smallholder farmers, small medium enterprises in the developing world, mostly in Latin America and Africa, to help them build competitive farms, businesses and industries. And so this fellowship program was really the bridge for me from consulting 
to the social impact space and agriculture that ultimately led me to developing forested foods. But the fellowship program, just to give a bit more context, they, they match business professionals, many of whom are earlier stage career professionals in consulting um, or banking or other business professions. And they match us with different projects that they have across across their portfolio of work. And how did you hear about TechnoServe? Were there other like this this kind of companies that you were considering to uh, to join or other like fellowships you were thinking about joining? Yeah, I think I think at the time I was looking at a few different things. Um, so one one other organization that had a program similar to TechnoServe's was Grameen Bank Foundation. So Grameen Bank had like a Bankers Without Borders program. Um, you didn't have to be a banker; you could be a consultant or you know another business professional. So they had a similar like short-term leave program where you could take a break from your company, work with them for a few months, do impactful work using your same skill set. Um, so this, you know, three was it like a three-month stint or like what what, what kind yeah. of time frame were you thinking about? TechnoSurf's fellowship program is really scoped out based off of the work needed, um, and on average the projects are anywhere from three months to 12 months. So mine was initially five months. And so the idea was for me to take short-term leave from Booz Allen, be in Ethiopia, which is where my placement was for five months, and then return return back. And that's mm. normally kind of like the flow of the consultants. And is that very normal for consultants to be able to take short-term leave like this? I think some consulting firms, it's kind of baked into the two-year mark for a lot of the junior consultants, or it's kind of a part of the culture to look for short-term leave after two years, especially before going to business school. At Booz Allen, it wasn't as structured, but I think in retrospect, being friends with another consultant at Booz Allen, who was, I think, one or two years my senior at the time, and seeing him go through the TechnoServe process that really paved the way for me to see that it was possible. So you, you actually knew someone who went through the whole fellowship and the whole program before you. Was it hard to convince your manager to let you do this? Not really. So my manager had known that I was really passionate about social impact. One of the reasons I went to Booz Allen was because I was really interested in private public partnerships and just understanding how different sectors of society, public, private, nonprofit, interacted with each other independently and how to one day be someone to align the incentives of the sectors. And so when I told them that I was really interested in this opportunity, it wasn't really a surprise to any of them. And they were all really supportive, which I'm very grateful for. Cool. So within TechnoServe, were there different types of projects that you could choose? Yeah, for sure. So when I first enrolled in this, the TechnoServe pro bono consulting program, which they call the fellowship, basically what happens is your CV and your application with a couple of essay questions is in the database. And at the same time, on the other end, different TechnoServe country offices across Latin America and Africa are submitting project proposals and scopes of work. And so the TechnoServe fellowship manager, she's like looking at her database of consultants and looking at like the needs of the programs in TechnoServe offices, and she's matching you to them. The project that I ended up being a good match for 
I was helping to build the managerial capacity of the mid-level managers in TechnoServe's office in Ethiopia so that they could better reach their program goals. Okay. So actually, you did you specifically say that you were interested in agriculture? And was that something you were interested at the beginning or it kind of developed over time? I realized I probably should step back a bit. So when I was looking to transition or take a break from my corporate consulting job, I wasn't necessarily looking for a specific sector or function. I just knew I wanted to do something social impact related. So it could have been in health and education and agriculture. And so I was actually more looking for a program that had the structure to take on someone with my kind of vague but professional consulting skills in a way that was helpful to their social impact space. And TechnoServe had just built such a great program to leverage these skills of professionals that were similar to my background. And were you looking to move to Africa? Like, I guess it's quite uncommon for people who grew up in Hong Kong, for example, to go and live in Africa for a period of time, even if it was just a few months. I think there's a lot of, not like stigma, but more like almost like fear with people in in Hong Kong to be like, oh yeah, look, I'm going to live in Africa. Um, What was that something that you faced yourself or you were like, oh yeah, no, no, no. It was always like my dream to go try living in Africa. Honestly, I I did not have any sort of specific interest in the African continent. I think to a degree, I was quite interested in emerging markets. But at that time, I was thinking more like Latin America, Southeast Asia even. And so it was just by chance that Ethiopia was the place I went to. So that, that was it. And when I got matched with a project in Ethiopia, I had all of these plans to research, read up on history and, you know, like the geopolitical circumstances. And I even had a plan to like look at the names of my colleagues in Ethiopia. So I didn't get off the plane and was that like super ignorant. (laughs) Well, either way, I was going to be ignorant, but (laughs) less ignorant foreigner. But, you know, just given the nature and pace of consulting, I had (laughs) so little time to transition. And I basically like bought a Lonely Planet guidebook right before getting on the plane, just like read through it on the plane and got there. Yeah, so it was very little preparation, but I don't really know how I would have done it any other way. <laughs> That's amazing, honestly. I think it's so cool that, that you, did, you did that. Um, so, okay, so you, you get there and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to be here for five months and then I'm going to go back to my life in New York. Tell me a little bit more about how life was like when you were in your five-month stint in Ethiopia and then how did it turn into a fully-fledged business and living in Ethiopia full-time? Yeah so when I first arrived I didn't actually have any friends or anyone I knew for the first month or so and so I think for me that was the biggest adjustment was just having to like build a community from scratch like for me that was more of the adjustment than like no Wi-Fi in my house, not speaking the language. And I think thinking about that transition, I'm actually still surprised by how hard it was given that very quickly into my five months, I knew I wanted to dedicate my life to agriculture, at least for the foreseeable future. And after that five months, I extended another three months. 
And I basically, I was doing this thing where I was extending with the TechnoServe team in Ethiopia and then also extending my leave in the US with my managers at Booz Allen. And I think, again, despite this budding passion for the work I was doing on the ground in Ethiopia, and then at that point also having started to develop a really strong, amazing community in Ethiopia, it was really, really hard for me to cut the cord on my corporate life in in the US. And I, I suppose that part of that speaks back to these like values that I had growing up of like stability and the perfect like white collar status bringing job. And and yeah, I mean like not gonna lie, definitely shed a lot of tears like making this decision about a job. But yeah, I, I think I finally I finally realized that my heart was really like in agriculture in Ethiopia doing the work I was doing towards the end of like that second leg or I guess the first extension. I realized that it just wasn't professional for me to be delaying my return back to the US and so finally just quit my job. Wow. That is yeah, I mean, I'm sure that it was definitely a very tough decision and life in Ethiopia I'm sure is not at all the same as life in New York. And it seems to me like it was because you were very passionate about the agriculture industry. So maybe tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I think a week into being in Ethiopia, I was still just being onboarded to the different projects that TechnoServe had in Ethiopia. So one of the projects was working with smallholder coffee farmers to improve coffee farmers' livelihoods through better production yields of coffee and then ultimately linking them and their better quality products to the market. And so I went to the field my second week in with a coffee buyer from the US in addition to the TechnoServe team. And so the TechnoServe team was kind of like rolling out the work that they do right in front of me. And just being in the field and realizing and really feeling that a majority of the world is in farming and all of the things that we eat and drink, it all comes from places like this. Just opened my eyes up to the potential impact that I could have if I stayed in this space. So you were working on a few projects in Ethiopia at the beginning that was relating to farmers and agriculture. And that's kind of how you developed your passion or your interest in agriculture. I guess, when did you decide to move away from TechnoServe and, and start your, your own business? And how did you come up with the, the idea? So I was at TechnoServe from beginning of 2015 all the way until I went to business school in 2017. And so even before coming to Ethiopia, I knew that entrepreneurship was like a potential route for me um, and especially like social entrepreneurship. I didn't know when it would happen in my life. I didn't know how it would manifest, what kind of business I would be building. But when I moved to Ethiopia with TechnoServe, fell in love with agriculture, that's when I started realizing that the, the business I would build would be in agriculture. And so I would say that I didn't really break away from TechnoServe to focus on my own venture fully until I left TechnoServe for business school, which is where I incubated Forested Foods. I would say that working at TechnoServe actually just really helped me in my journey of evaluating like what kind of agriculture business I wanted to start. 
And so I would say like a year into like my three years at TechnoServe, I started being a bit more diligent about my process of business ideation and exploration. And so Forested Foods wasn't actually the first business idea that I was thinking about. At one point, I was really interested in setting up soybean crushing facilities. But soon after I started working on a project for TechnoServe, centered on a strategy on how we could combat deforestation by improving the incomes and livelihoods of forest-based community members through production and sales of non-timber forest products. That's what was really my entryway into the world of forestry. And for that project, I started off interviewing different farmers who lived around the forest, interviewing government stakeholders, truck drivers who were helping trade products from farm to the capital, talking to exporters um, based in the capital, selling products to international markets, was talking to like international buyers. So just really getting a sense of what everyone's challenges were, what were farmers' issues, and what did people really want from a forest-based economy. And so when I was working on that project, I was probably still looking at the quality testing company, but realized that I was really intrigued by forestry and trying to find a business solution to making forest conservation much more lucrative. And so that's really when I decided that I wanted to be specifically in forest conservation, but from a business perspective and in thinking about kind of like the landscape analysis I had just done, I realized that there was a market player missing who could better align the different incentives of everyone in the ecosystem. So the farmers, the traders, the exporters, the buyers. And for me, this market player missing that I really wanted to build was an agroforestry trading venture. And so right before I left for business school, fall of 2017, I had decided that I wanted to start Forested Foods, which in my mind at the time was just this idea of like a more vertically integrated agroforestry trading house. Got it, got it. So basically this idea came about because you were working on a project for TechnoServe in this space. And when you were doing the landscape analysis, you started to see that there were gaps in this in this area. And you thought, oh, why not see if I can build a business that helps service this gap in the market? And then you decided to go to business school. What was the reason for going back to business school? Yeah. So honestly, I wasn't super sold on the traditional reasons why people go to business school, like to pivot industries, get a promotion, or just like elevate their status in the professional world. I knew that if I was going to go to business school, I wanted to use that time very wisely to incubate a a business idea. So I actually had deferred going to business school for a year by this point. I was like, I'm only going if I know what I want to build. And so that was kind of my transition back was with that level of intentionality that I wanted to incubate and pilot the venture during business school. And did you feel like you had to go to business school to start this idea? Definitely not. And I think that's why I was so on the fence because obviously business school is two years and has quite the price tag. And I think I was 
sitting there being like, oh, that's like two years and what, like two, 250,000 US dollars I could be spending on the business. And so what actually ended up selling me on the idea of business was not actually the opportunity to incubate the venture during business school, even though that would have been an objective. What really sold me on going to business school was this idea that I was actually investing in my own personal growth and network in ways that wouldn't actually manifest until far into my career. So I'd gone to Welcome Weekend, that Yale School of Management, to kind of get a sense of the vibes, like potential, potential future classmates, just hear from the dean and professors and check out the resources. And one thing that the dean at the time said during the opening speech was that the real return on investment of a business school degree doesn't come during your time at school or on campus or even right after school in you know when you get your first job out of B school but that the ROI really comes like five ten years from now and I think he used the metaphor of like a boomerang and like throwing a boomerang and you know it traveling places accumulating all this value and then coming back to you and I think that metaphor and just, you know, realizing that the value of a business school degree was really in this experience and a future of added value that you may not know. For some reason, this like vagueness really spoke to me. And I also suspect it was like the the energy and the culture of, of Yale that really sold me as well. And just feeling like it was my place and my people and, and the culture. And so even though that was the selling point for me to go to business school, I knew that if I went, I'd really want to make the best use of my time there to incubate the venture. And so you went to Yale with an idea of a business you wanted to start. Did you consider, I guess, like during your time at Yale, did you also consider some of the other ideas like the soybean crusher you mentioned, or that was already like out of your mind and and you were very much focused on the forested foods idea? Yeah, so I was very focused on forested foods. So when I went to school, it was less about what would like the general business model be. And I was trying to work through like, where do I start? And so for, for forested foods, like our vision was always to build a global diverse range of different forest portfolios that we were sourcing from like honeys and spices and gums and fruits. But I just needed to figure out like, where do I start? (laughs) And so I decided to start with honey after evaluating the different constraints that I had being in school full time. And so decided to pilot over the summer where I had like, you know, three months straight to just focus on this. And I decided that in order to develop a proof of concept in the best way possible, given like the larger vision, that I should build a supply chain, just one supply chain of one product from end to end. And given the timing of the summer holiday, given like the resourcing needed and like my relationships with farmers, I knew that honey made the most sense. So that summer you were trying to test out the entire supply chain from from end to end. How do you even go about doing that? I, I guess you had some connection with some farmers already in Ethiopia But what about the demand side or turning that honey into bottled products and then taking it to a supermarket or a store? How did you figure out the entire supply chain? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I really wish I had worked on the market side before the supply side, 
because for me, like my domain knowledge was already in the supply side. Like I knew farmers, I knew how to work with them. So the way it works now is we're going to these coffee farmers and saying, hey, continue doing your coffee thing, but we actually really want to buy forest honey from you. And so we're basically creating additional income streams for them without them having to clear or destroy any of the ancient forest trees. And in terms of the market side, I had to do a lot of market research of where it made sense for us to sell honey, given trends in honey and health and specialty foods industry. And I'm realizing that in the U.S. there's this like budding sub-segment of specialty honey. The U.S. is not super familiar with these concepts of like single origin honeys or like monofloral honeys where we're applying a lot of the now broader awareness of like single origin and what that means for specialty coffee or like terroir for wine. Like those concepts were not applied to honey and I thought that was a big opportunity for us. So a lot of the marketing was less about it being Ethiopian and more about us working with our farmers to produce single origin honey alongside the distinctive like flowering periods of different trees in the forest to then actually produce a line of different varieties of honey that are different in color and smell and flavor and texture and bringing that to the specialty food market. So we actually designed like a honey tasting wheel quite similar to tasting tools that you'll get when you do like a wine tasting or a coffee tasting and again a lot of like our marketing and our content we talk about in terms of flavor and texture and color and for me when I was looking into this I was just quite like baffled that it hadn't happened already because when you look at single origin honeys like they don't just taste different they are like visibly different like they are literally different shades of whites and yellows and reds and browns you know whereas with coffee i mean I love single origin coffees but the color is like normally the same right it's like that coffee color and so for me i was just like okay this just like makes sense to like start conversations and intellectually tickle people by the idea of like single origin honey got it and i guess that's a pretty risky move because what if there was no one who was on the other side to buy i guess my question is did you do any sort of testing beforehand to see if there would be demand for this or you were like pretty confident that that once you had figure out the supply side and and getting the honey bottled up and ready to go you would be able to find people to buy honestly i think one of my regrets was not doing like my product market fit testing a lot earlier and i think to a degree i was avoiding it because i was just not as excited about that part and i think one of the reasons why i was like so reckless with that was because i was like at the end of the day agriculture trade and and food there will always be a place for it you know it it it's the backbone of the economy we needed to survive the trick was really trying to figure out how to position our product in the market given where the potential of the market was but also given the unit economics of how much it cost to get our product from forest to international shelf and so when we launched the honey product i was doing outreach to 
like snack food companies like granola bars who used honey as an input and that would be kind of like the bulk distribution version of our supply chain and then i was also reaching out to upscale michelin star restaurants and then i was also working on branding and packaging for a direct-to-consumer brand so i was really running like all three and during my my time at school we were selling honey to like a specialty honey store in boston we were you know selling direct especially to like the yale community during different farmers markets and holiday markets and our our first our first buyer actually ended up being a three michelin star restaurant and i think at that time i was thinking that the restaurant industry would be a really great place for us to start um to get into some cross marketing because i think like this rise of like celebrity chefs and like restaurants as these platforms of influence and so i was thinking like oh it'd be really great to market to these visible restaurants and then also build the direct to consumer brand but use that restaurant marketing to generate excitement with end consumers so that was that was initially the thinking were you thinking about pricing it as a premium product Because you mentioned like working with like high end restaurants, etc., was that kind of the goal? Was that like you would be pricing this honey at a premium to the other competitor products? So, so when I was thinking about brand positioning, what I saw was that the super cheap kind of commodity honey market, and also the value for money market were pretty saturated, and. I mean, I knew that I did not want to sell our honey as a commodity, and also from a pricing perspective, like we just could not compete.、Uh, so, where I actually saw more of the white space in the honey sector was really in like the higher end stuff, and it just kind of aligned with our vision to drive more sustainable forest ecosystems and represent forest-based products from Ethiopia in a more quality signaling way. And then also, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about what it means to be a single origin honey brand, and so all these pieces just made sense to position Marisa as a specialty kind of premium brand. And along the way, did you think about fundraising? When I first started the venture, I knew I would have to fundraise at some point, but also just put that on the back burner. So we launched our pilot. Summer 2018, and did that through grant funding from Yale and also my personal savings. And then, after upon graduation, May 2019, did it full time. Was still kind of like running off of savings and school grants, and oh, and also revenue. I guess at that point, so I actually just. Launched fundraising activities two weeks ago, and the reason why I want to fundraise at all, even though like we are gross margin positive, and I think over time we could scale slowly, is because I started developing this urge to grow forested foods like much faster, bigger, and so even though we could kind of continue moving slowly with our honey brand, like slowly adding more products. The magic in our model, which is to demonstrate that forest conservation can be much more lucrative via agroforestry, 
versus like cleared and destroyed, like that really only works at scale. And so if we really want to make a, a dent in the forest industry globally, like we just have to be working with like an exponentially growing network of farmers and expanding globally beyond Ethiopia to other countries in sub-Saharan Africa, eventually like Latin America and Southeast Asia. Yeah, so I guess on that note, what's the next step for you guys? Is it around growing geographically or is it moving into other products beyond honey? The next step for us is getting that market scale. And so right now I'm pretty focused on establishing relationships with buyers who want and then can absorb greater volumes of honey. So that's one is really scaling up volumes. And then we are getting into other products. So we're working in the same forest areas as we're sourcing honey to source different forest-based spices. And then we are expanding geographically as well. So I do have this goal for us to be in London and Hong Kong by the end of 2020. And then, yeah, and then fundraising really to, to scale up our operations and market reach. So a few things on the table. <laughs> quite a few things, I think, quite a few things uh, to keep you very, very busy. So, but that's very exciting. Um, shifting to something a bit more personal, moving to Ethiopia, when you told your family and your, your friends, what was their reaction? Yeah, so I... I think that their reactions were probably a little less traditional for, you know, what you imagine of Asian Chinese parents. So I think for most of my upbringing, I was never really pressured by them to go into like specific jobs, like a doctor, a lawyer, a banker. I think any sort of pressure to follow that route was more just like general Asian society. And so when I decided that, I was moving to Ethiopia. I think no one was really surprised. And I think in general, like my parents have been pretty hands off about my career. I think my mom's like one concern about me going to Ethiopia was the Ebola outbreak that was happening. But once I clarified for her that Ethiopia was in East Africa and that Ebola was much more concentrated on the West, I think she felt a lot more comfortable. But that was really the only concern. <laughs> I wanted to ask your thoughts on this statement. In the Western world, people usually say, follow your dreams and eventually the money will come. Whereas in Asia, it's definitely very much like financial security and financial stability over following your dreams. What are your thoughts on this on this statement? So I don't actually b believe or agree with that statement. <laughs> I think if you follow your dreams, you are more likely to find success and fulfillment and I think as I get older, I realize that, you know, success and fulfillment doesn't equate to money for everyone. I mean, I can't deny, like, I, I do think that money is a huge enabler of happiness and just like peace in life. But it's definitely not like the whole picture. And, and I guess on the flip side, I see a ton, a ton of people making a lot of money doing doing what they don't love. You know, so I think for me is really about like reorienting the goal or the purpose of life. I definitely agree that people should follow their dreams. And I also do agree that what will come is like that sense of fulfillment and that may or may not be more money. 
I think that's a that's a really interesting point. I think it really does come down to people's values and what people prioritize more in their life, whether it is money or, and I guess it comes back down to their fears as well. Like, are there fears like being poor or boredom or following passion versus making a ton of money, et cetera? So I think that's a really good point. One last question for you before we close out. Any advice for anyone who is thinking about starting their own company in the agriculture space? And also maybe what do you wish you would have known uh, before embarking on this journey? I think if anyone is interested in building something at all, agriculture or not, um, like really get your hands dirty. Like don't do it from a computer don't be too cautious, especially in the beginning, just like get out there, like talk to people. I'm a huge fan of the principles of human-centered design and just talking to people in the ecosystem of which you're curious to work in and just understanding like what are the current processes, what are the current products, like what doesn't work, what could be better, why, like what do people want from this product or service? And then after that, I think one thing I wish I did better that I would tell people to do is just like test to build, test build faster. Just like put your products, your thoughts out there faster in rough draft form because you're never going to know how to refine your path until you get like real authentic feedback. And I think one thing I've learned on this journey is like everything is a work in progress, no matter what it is, like your product, your pitch deck, your business model. And so the more you put different iterations out there, the faster you'll be able to like refine what you're trying to build. And I think community is something that is increasingly important. The entrepreneurial path, especially if you don't have co-founders from the beginning, can be quite lonely. And so just making sure that you have that community of either other founders or friends who can support you or also even just like relieve you of your own you know, all consuming entrepreneurship world is really critical to like your mental health. I think these are really, really good piece of advice um, and a really great way for us to just wrap up today's conversation. So just really wanted to thank you for sharing your really interesting and exciting story. It's been so cool to get to chat with you and, and learn about your story. And I can't wait to see where Forested Foods grows and takes off. Thanks for having me. And there you have it, my conversation with the founder of Forested Foods. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, finding out what you're passionate about is actually a series of small steps. It's often not a huge revelation that presents itself to you in a neat package. For example, Ariana had no idea that she would be starting a business in agriculture, let alone in Africa. She just knew she wanted to start a business and make an impact. It was through a series of steps, you know, signing up for that fellowship with TechnoServe and also through luck. They just so happened to place her in a project in Ethiopia and she just so happened to be working on a project on forestry. All of this combined was what led her to build Forested Foods in the end. Two, take a leap of faith, but have a backup plan. Ariana didn't outright quit her job to move to Africa full time. It was, again, a series of small decisions. She took a leap of faith and signed up for a five-month program to try out what it would be like working in Africa. But at the same time, she had a consulting job waiting for her back in New York in case things didn't work out. 
Oftentimes, entrepreneurship is not just blindly leaping into the unknown. It's about taking calculated risks. And three, if you're really looking to start a business, stop hiding behind your computer screen and get your hands dirty. There's only so much market research you can do by reading reports online, and the best way to understand if there's demand for your product is just go talk to your customers. It might not be the most scalable, but it is the best way for you to get to know your market at the beginning. Same goes for the supply side of the equation. Talk to your suppliers. Be on the ground. Really understand how your product is made. Ariana did all that. Her experiences on the ground in Ethiopia meant that she understood the entire supply chain of her product inside and out. And that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control Alt Career. Check back in two weeks from now for our next episode, where I'll be interviewing Dinesh, one of the founding members of Chope, an online restaurant booking platform with a presence in Singapore, Hong Kong, China, Indonesia, and Thailand, and hear how he chose to forego NYU and worked his way up to chief business officer at Chope. If you think pursuing an alternative career is difficult, you try telling your parents you don't even want to go to university. Tune in in two weeks to find out just how he did it. It's a super interesting one. And as a reminder, I'd love it if you could help me fill in the feedback form in today's show notes. I want to create content that's useful for you, and this will really help guide me to make better and even more relevant episodes for you in the future. All right, that's it for today. See you guys next time. 